Revelation. And guess what? After today, we are halfway. Isn't that exciting? Halfway. And so uh, I, have, I have a few questions for you. And most of them are review. All righty? So let's see how you do it. I mean, literally, it's been a month since, since you've taken this quiz. So we'll see. You know, as a teacher, my goal is to move information from the short term to the long term. Okay? Um, you know, knowing it tomorrow is good, but we want it next week, next month, next year. We want this so embedded in your mind that you can't forget it if you wanted to. And, and so that's what, that's what teachers do. So chapter one comes with a special what? Blessing, that's right. A blessing that no one other book offers. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep these things which are written in it for the time is near. And so we want to continue um, asking for that blessing. Um, Adam, I reminded them that you didn't bring your taser. Not today. Okay, good. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Number two. Chapter one describes John's vision of, of Jesus Christ. That's right. Number three, chapter two and three include the seven, to the seven, there you go. All right, seven letters, seven churches. Churches in order, ESP, TSP, L. All right, you got these down yet? All right, what's the E stand for? Ephesus. And the S is? Smyrna, nice. P is? Pergamus. First to second, uh, T. Thyatira. Second S. And the L is? Oh, wait, we forgot the P, our church. Yeah, thank you. I, yeah, I saw that. You're like, hey, wait. Okay. And, and then the L would be? Laodicea. Excellent. All right. The location of chapter four, where, where did that take place? In the throne room of God. There John saw 24 what? Elders. And each of those elders represent 12 Old Testament patriarchs and the 12 New Testament apostles. And so if we combine all 24 elders, there's a representation of all of God's Children, people, I would take, I would accept children, yes. Number eight, the harpazo, which Jesus calls, when Jesus calls his people to come up hither, is also known as the, what? The rapture, that's the rapture. Beginning of chapter four, remember the church is taken up, all right? From chapter four on, the church is gone. And so we're watching it. We are like exit stage left. We get to watch chapters five through 19 from the mezzanine. We get to watch it from above. Um, And thank you, Jesus, because... You know, it only gets worse from here, right? All right. Number nine, John also saw four living what? Creatures. The focus of chapter five was the scroll with seven seals. And the scroll, the seven seals, it is the title deed to the earth. And, and Jesus is coming back to, to gain what he had purchased. Number 11, in chapter six, we saw the first seals open. The first four seals released a colored what? Colored horse, right? And they had specific riders. With the first seal open, riding the white horse was, it wasn't Jesus, who was it? It was the Antichrist, right? Okay. Number 13, with the second seal open, the red horse rider was war. The third seal open, the black horse rider was famine. And then after famine, the fourth seal open, and the ugly green horse rider was death. That's right. Good. Number 16, we also learned that Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is essentially, it's an elaboration of the great tribulation. And that tribulation is described during the 7th, 70th week of Daniel, found at the end of chapter 9. Don't say it with a question mark. Say 9. Yes. All right. 
During the first half of the 70th week, there will be a false, there will be a false, but we, you know, we'll, we'll call it a false peace, right? Because peace, peace, then comes sudden destruction, right? And so during the first half of that 70th week, there's going to be a false peace. We're going to talk about a little bit about that tonight is, is what is it that could happen during that first three and a half years? What is it that could bring peace to Jerusalem? Okay, and so we'll talk about that today. This peace is orchestrated by the Antichrist, and after three and a half years, he sets himself up to be what? Yeah, yeah, to be worshipped. And literally, at that point, that's when all H-E double hockey sticks breaks loose on earth, and it's not a place we want to be. Number 20, then after the fifth seal, under the altar, John saw who? Yeah, he saw the martyrs clothed in white robes. Number 21, after the sixth seal, there were catastrophic judgments, including a great... Earthquake. I always give you that hint, don't I? Number 22, the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like red orb blood. Yeah, good. And the stars fell to earth as fig, fig tree drops its late figs. Number, in chapter 7, we saw how many children of Israel sealed. 144,000. That's pretty good. A month later, we still got this, yes. The book of Revelation is based on a heptatic structure. Heptatic means what? Heptatic means seven. Yeah, so we talk about that where the book of Revelation is based on that heptatic structure, meaning that there were six seals that were broken and then there was a pause. And in this case, it was a one-chapter pause. And then and then it goes on, and then after the, the, the seals... And, and we'll go into the trumpets at the end of the sixth trumpet. Then we take a really long break, and that's where we're at now, because that really long break goes from chapter 9 all the way to 15. After the seventh seal was opened, the seven angels blew seven trumpets. Yeah. Oh, wait. And then John described the breaking of the first six seals, and then there was a pause, just what we were talking about. And so there were seven trumpets. The final three trumpets were what kind of... Did I mess that? Oh, yeah. The first four trumpets were natural judges, re- judgments. Remember, the plants were all dried up. The oceans turned to blood. The, the water became bitter. And then there are things in the solar system. Those, those were all natural judgments. But after that, it started to get scary. The final three trumpets were what kind of judgments? Yeah, supernatural. Okay, so the first four were natural. The last three are supernatural. Remember the whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember, that words, those words in order mean that it's going to get progressively worse. So, whoa, whoa, and then whoa. And the worst is just to come because the last three trumpets are worse than the first four. In chapter 10, John is told to eat the little book. All right. There you go. See? That was good. All right. There we go. All right. Nice job. Here we go. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Again, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, and, and we thank you for this evening, and uh, those of you who are brought just a special blessing. We ask, Father, that uh, as we begin to learn uh, about what will come of those who don't have a relationship with Jesus, will will only fuel our passion for, for sharing your love with others, that, that we would be your witnesses. So, Lord, we just lift this time to you, and we uh, ask that you would take your word and sink it deep. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alrighty. Tonight, chapter 11, we're only going to get through verses 1 through 12. Alright? Then we're going to circle the wagons. I think this, 
you turn your Bibles to chapter 11, verses 1. Then John writes and he says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,160 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Verse 9. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Wow, pretty amazing, pretty awesome, right? Alrighty, let's jump in. Well, Revelation 1, uh, 11, verse 1, it says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. Now, we've already talked about papyrus. Remember, papyrus is that plant that grows next to the river that they would shred and make paper and overlay it, and, 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 and that's what they would, would write on. In fact, the title deed that Jesus is coming to get is written on papyrus. So they, they would take this, this rod, about 10 foot long, and um, John is told to measure using this rod. And he says... And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. And so John's told them to measure the temple. And that's exciting right now because guess what? There is no temple. All right. It needs to be built. And we read here that there's going to be a temple during the tribulation. So that's something that's got to happen. Jesus, Paul, John, they all talk about the temple having to be rebuilt. In Jesus, uh, Matthew 24, 15, Paul talks about it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and here in Revelation 11, 1 through 2, uh, John talks about that this temple needs to be rebuilt. In fact, Jesus highlights in a confidential meeting, he meets with four of his disciples, and he says, you know what, my, my second coming is going to be identified with this key pivotal piece that's going to happen inside that temple. And so the whole idea of the desecration um, in, inside the temple that isn't even built yet. So that's exciting. What's exciting is, is that all of these things are coming together. Now, um, do, do we need to see the temple before the rapture? Absolutely not. But we know that that temple is going to be there for the abomination of desolation. And so that's just exciting. Um, a little temple history. It started as a, as, as a tent, 
right? The tabernacle. Remember that this was this strange portable sanctuary that they were hauled all over the desert by the Levites, all through the book of Exodus and all through the wilderness wanderings. And, and you know, they were told exactly how it was supposed to be made and built and, and all of these things. So they were following a set of blueprints. Next Next temple was Solomon's temple, and Solomon built the first permanent temple on Jerusalem's Mount Moriah, right in, in the center of Jerusalem, in 1050 B.C. Now, Solomon's dad, David, he wanted to build it, but because he was a man of war, God said, no, 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 you're not going to build it. But David decided that he wanted to collect the resources and pay the bill. So he wanted to foot the bill to build the temple. He just wasn't able to do it. And so we read that God appears to Solomon and he tells Solomon exactly what to do, what exactly what to build, and that's what Solomon builds. And so what you see here is, is obviously a model of, of what that temple looked like. And, and you know, when, when, um, when you look back, it's like, okay, so, you know, God's, God's temple went from a tabernacle to Solomon's temple. That's, that's quite, a, quite a, a markup, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. More than 400 years ago, uh, 400 years later, at that point, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and decimated this temple Okay, in 586 B.C. About 70 years later, a man by the name of Zerubbabel, he was able to rebuild the temple in 536. And, and here's, a, here's a drawing of his model. And so... This temple was very modest. He didn't have the, the means that Solomon had and that, that David had, had, had financed. And, and so, uh, it, it was very, it, it was a step down. But, you know, it, it was, it was the temple. And, and, and it's interesting because those Jews who were kids in the time of Herod's temple, I'm sorry, in, in the time of Solomon's temple, you know, they were able to see it and, and know what it looked like. And when Zerubbabel's temple was built, they, they wept because they could compare the two. It's like they knew what used to be. In 20 BC, King Herod took Zerubbabel's temple and he basically expanded the existing temple uh, over a few of the decades that he was in charge. Now, Jewish scholars don't really consider this to be a, a third temple because it was, it was more of a remodel. And Herod did it to try to score some points with the Jews. And so he says, oh, look what I'm doing to your, to your temple. So he took Zerubbabel's and, and expanded on it and, um, and, and, and tried to, to, to score points with, with the Jews. And so this is the temple that uh, Jesus referred to when he said in Matthew 24, 2, he says, there shall be no stone left standing on top of another. This is the temple that he was talking about. And so in 70 AD, when ransacking the, the city of Jerusalem, a Roman soldier uh, against, uh, against orders, he disobeyed, uh, he tossed a, a torch inside the temple and it burned so hot that it melted all of the, the gold that was in, inlaid into the walls and into the implements and all of this and all of the gold went liquid and went into the cracks between the rocks that made up the floor. And so the Roman soldiers were told to literally dig up those rocks and to get that gold out from in between the cracks. And so, um, you know, Jesus's prophecy is, is, is true to the letter where not one stone was left on top of another. And so just amazing, an amazing detail. 
So it's kind of exciting. There's another temple that needs to be rebuilt and uh, or to be built. And there is um, an organization that's already literally uh, over the past 50 years putting together the, 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 the pieces, the parts, not only the building, but the, the, the tools that are used for the whole sacrificial system. Um, it's called the Institute of Temple Treasures, and it's in Jerusalem. And uh, you can go there now, and you can see lots of the things that are already been built. And so folks from around the world are donating uh, their money, their gold, their silver, for all of this to come together. I mean, it's going to happen. And so um, right now on the, on the website, they have some of the pieces that... Uh, are already in, in place. And so I, I just grabbed a couple of them. The copper laver that you see here, it stands in the temple courtyard. So when the temple's built, it's going to be in the courtyard between the sanctuary and the outer altar. And so it's, this is the first vessel that greet the priests every morning when they come in to do, when they will be doing their daily sacrifices. This is where they're going to wash their hands and feet before proceeding to attend the, the daily offering. I mean, literally, it's going to happen, right? They already have these pieces together. The Mizrak is is the is a silver, and gosh, it's beautiful. But the priest collects the blood from the sacrifices in this Mizrak and then spills the blood onto the corner of the altar. Okay, this this is for real. This is the large Mizrak. This is what they use uh, to collect the blood from larger sacrificing animals like cows and bulls. And so they have a little bit more blood, right? And so they, they need larger containers. They have the three the three pronged fork that's mentioned in First Samuel two thirteen. And this fork is used to turn over the offerings on the altar fire. It's, this is I have one next to my barbecue. Maybe it's not this big. But uh, you get you get the idea it's literally used to turn over the offerings on the altar fire and then and then um or, or lift it up and, and move it around so that the unconsumed portions of, of the offering or, or so even so that the wood pile can be rearranged. I mean, this is going to happen, and they are planning for it. You've heard of all kinds of different uh, offerings. You've heard, you know, flour offerings and oil offerings. This is a measuring cup that's going to be used to measure flour, wine, oil. All of these are uh, specific uh, volumes and amounts that are used... Um, for, for each of these different offerings. It's amazing. The silver shovel is used to, um, to, to remove ashes underneath the, the, uh, the altar. And the first task, this is the first thing, once everything's cooled down, the first thing in the morning, the priest uh, at the break of dawn, this is part of their piece, is to go in and clean those ashes underneath. The lottery box is an interesting piece. On Yom Kippur, Okay, just the, the highest holy day, the high priest reaches into this little box and it, it chooses lots. And this is determined which goat. So there's a series of goats and it's like goat A, B or C. It's like so they pull out the lottery and they decided, OK, so which one gets to go free? And but when I say free, what they do is they lay their hands on the goat and it's where we get the word scapegoat. Right where this this it's, it's a, he gets all the blame. Lucky him, right? And so uh, th- this is the lottery box, and um, 
The oil pitcher is used to fill the menorah, and actually this is gold, and it holds about two liters. So this is this is big. I wish we had some way so you could see, you know, just how you can compare the size. The incense shovel is used to remove the burning coals from the outer altar. Uh, we talked about this in chapter eight when we talked about the incense and that the cloud of the incense rises to the Lord as prayers of his saints. This is the shovel that's used to go from the outside coals to the uh, incense altar. I couldn't not include the menorah. The menorah is made of a single piece of solid gold. It It stands in the southern side of the sanctuary, and then each morning a priest prepares and rekindles the wicks, right? And uh, the central wick, the one in the middle, is called the western candle, and it's required to burn perpetually. It's not allowed to go out. And so what they do is they add the oil and the wicks and all of this candle, they're changed in such a fashion to ensure that it will never be extinguished. This is all going to happen. I was modeling some of the garments of the high priest for you. And um, so... The Institute has announced that they have completed, you know, the weaving of the, the, the sacred ephod garment. Remember we talked about the stones when we were talking about the seven layers of seven churches is that each of these stones represent one of the tribes and, and, um, you know, having all of this put together, I mean, everything from the, the color of the ephod, um, it, it's all gonna, it's all coming together. There are two, two schools that are presently being used to train young men to sacrifice animals in the in the temple tradition, you know, because, you know, nowadays it doesn't happen much. We don't have many farm guys anymore. Right. And so they're literally learning how to go through and make the animal sacrifices according to the Jewish tradition. Um, it's interesting that many of the last names of these students are called Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, because Cohen is a Hebrew for priest. I thought that was interesting. So why would they need to sacrifice animals? Uh, well, because the Orthodox Jewish community, they understand Leviticus 17.11. says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Uh, Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so since they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus, the Messiah, died for their sins, they realize that they need to make sacrifices. They have to have something in place uh, for their for their forgiveness. Um, And so. Does this mean that we need to see this temple rebuilt before the rapture? No. Not necessarily. Um, for there's actually a rather large object in the way. All right. It's called the Dome of the Rock. All right. The Dome of the Rock is that round gold uh, roofed uh, building that you see in the center there. It's um, it's it, it, it stands out, doesn't it? Yeah. Verse two, but leave out the court, which is outside the temple and do not measure it. Um, In the late 600s, a man named Omar built the Dome of the Rock Mosque on a 35-acre platform that is over the rock that's believed to be the site of the Holy of Holies. Okay, So think about the tabernacle, think about the temple, 
And the Holy of Holies is the most sacred room in, in, in Jewish history, right? And, and, I mean, Holy of Holies, it's amazing. And so it's believed to be built on, right on the site. And so the mosque is considered to be the third most holy site in Islam. And so this makes rebuilding the temple on the site impossible because the Muslims would immediately invade it, uh, Israel if anything were to happen to the mosque. Right? It'd be automatic. You remember last year when they were tossing missiles back and forth at each other? You remember? I mean, literally, it was a year ago, and you know, over 700 missiles were tossed in, in, into Israel, and and I just thought, you know, wouldn't it be? I couldn't decide if it would be funny, scary, or in, just interesting if one of those missiles were to take out the Dome of the Rock. Um, but it didn't happen. Um, but over 30 years uh, ago, over spent, after spending 16 years or so studying the Temple Mount, a physicist and an archaeologist at uh, Hebrew University, his name was Dr. Asher Kaufman, and he came to the conclusion that, uh, well, that he wrote up in, in the April 1983 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review. So he wrote this all up, scientifically reviewed. And Dr. Kaufman declares that while the, the Mosque of Omar had been assumed to sit on the, the site of the Holy of Holies, the true location was actually 100 meters north. Right? So all this time, you know, they're thinking, oh, man, everything is built right there on the Dome of the Rock. And... But uh, Dr. Kaufman says, oh, no, no, it's, it's 100 meters this way. Right? And so, um, let me see here. Um, 100, 100 meters away, what's there? Well, if you go there now, and I've never been there, but I'd sure love to. Uh, but uh, what's there now is this little gazebo-looking thing. And uh, below this structure is the only place that the original bedrock of the temple is exposed. And the rock is flat as opposed to the jagged rock that's found inside the Dome of the Rock. So literally it makes sense that this is where the Holy of Holies might have been. And so we call this the, the northern conjecture. So on the picture you can see the northern conjecture where... Kaufman says this is where the temple was. The traditional view is in the center, and that's that's notice it's right over the Dome of the Rock. And so the position, the northern position, makes sense historically. A Jewish tradition described that when a priest stood in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he could look through the veil, through the door, and see the eastern gate, straight line. And so what they found in 1970, they were doing some secret digging. They were secretly uh, doing some excavation. And they found that the original eastern gate was directly below what is now called the eastern gate. So they can line that up. And so it makes sense. So according to Kaufman and lots of other scholars, the temple presently could be rebuilt and the Dome of the Rock could be Standing, it could remain standing. Pretty amazing when you think about it. Now, as you can see from the from the map, there's also a southern conjecture. There's an idea that um, that has to do with differences in elevations, and that the height from what's called the Holda Gate to the Holy of Holies, there's um, the Antonius Tower, and there's a moat around it, and, and they, they, there's a, a, you know a, a progression of thinking that says you know this it could be here. 
But either way, northern or southern conjecture, it puts the Holy of Holies not on top of the Dome of the Rock. And that, in turn, makes that the, uh, the temple could be rebuilt. And then that brings us to the rest of verse 2. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. All right. So... In 1967, during the Six-Day War, the Israelis launched a preemptive strike against the Arabs and recaptured the city of Jerusalem. Um, A man by the name of General Moshe Dayan, and here he is, uh, could have easily booted the Muslims off the Temple Mount at this point, but for some reason he didn't, and he doesn't know why. Uh, He died in the mid-'80s, but in his autobiography, he talks about, you know, he had a chance, and he, he, he... could never fully explain why he allowed them to retain control of the 35-acre parcel. Um, You know, I just see that at this point the outer court of the temple uh, remains given to the Gentiles to this day. And so it's just scripture. Verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Why are they two witnesses? Well, because our God's a God of order, and that's what he does. He says, because in the mouth of two witnesses, every word shall be established. Right? We can think of Joshua sending two spies. We can think of two angels on the tomb on Easter morning. We can think about Jesus sending out his witnesses two by two. So that, that's a normal thing. Verse 4, then these are two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And so what John's doing, he's, he's comparing the two witnesses. They're, they're likened to two olive trees that you'll read about in Zechariah 4. And that, it, that the olive trees provide a perpetual supply of oil. It's like being perpetually uh, powered by the Holy Spirit in ministry. And that's the way we need to be. You know, I've heard so many, oh, I, I got a little burned out, so I, I quit. It's like, well, if you're doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't burn out, right? And so we need to be real real careful that when we're doing things, we need to do them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Part of Zechariah 4 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We minister to others by the Holy Spirit and not our own strength. Verse 5, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. So who are these guys? Who are the witnesses? Ah, you think. That's your call? All right. I'm kind of going with you, but let me explain why. Uh, They have power to bring about drought and scorch anyone who hassles them. Wow, that'd make some interesting street witnessing, wouldn't it? Right? You wouldn't get any catcalls there. Okay, if we look at some historical evidence, we know that uh, Elijah called down fire from heaven and that destroyed 100 soldiers in, in 2 Kings 1. We read in James that Elijah prayed and the heavens yielded no rain for three and a half years. We read in uh, 2 Kings 2.11 that Elijah never died, but instead he rode to heaven in a fiery chariot. And finally, the Old Testament ends promising Elijah's return in Malachi 4.5. So, you know, my money is that Elijah is definitely one of the two witnesses. Uh, he just fits the bill. Um, 
Revelation 11, 5 through 6, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Sound like somebody familiar? Yeah, I'm betting that the second witness is Moses, and, and this is why, because you know Mo- Moses had command. He commanded the plagues uh, like darkness, frogs, and death. He commanded the water at the Nile to be turned to blood. He, it's like he already fulfilled all the prerequisites for this job description, didn't he? Right? He, he, I, I've done that. Been there. Done that. Okay. So um, both Moses and Elijah were together on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 7 and 17. And, and both of these guys, they, you know, they have all the experiences. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I, God is, is just a God of order. So it, it doesn't surprise me that, that, uh, that everything lines up. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And so you can see that the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit would be Satan. He comes out and he overcomes them and he kills them. And their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. But... Uh, we know where Jesus was crucified and that this is Jerusalem. He, he's calling because of the, the fact that Jerusalem had rejected Christ. He, he's comparing them to Sodom and Egypt. Then these from the people's tribes, tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing to think for hundreds of years, Bible commentators, they just couldn't figure out how the whole world was going to see one event. Not anymore. Uh, I remember a few years ago, um, the band U2, they were playing, I think it was in London, and then they streamed the concert world, worldwide. And I was excited. Yeah, I'll press play and I'll watch them. I mean, it was skippy, you know, jumpy, but what the amazing part was, was next to it were comments that were being written in real time from all around the world. I mean, the World Wide Web was exactly that. Uh, one, one event was seen around the world. And so, it, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that uh, this, this could happen, that when 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 read that from people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies, everybody around the world is going to have the opportunity to, to to look at whatever device and to see what's going on in one event. Um, it, it sure answers that question. And and you know what? When this happens, uh, the folk the cameras will be focused on on this event, and and all of these people are going to see it. Um, but the people are going to celebrate. They're going to celebrate that these two guys who, who made their world feel uncomfortable, who talked about things that they didn't want to hear, that these guys are now dead. So what did they do? And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Isn't that wild? I mean, these are people who unrepentant, and they are excited to see that those that were sharing the gospel, that were telling about God's love, that they're now dead. And so they, they had a party. And then they would pick stuff out on Amazon and send each other presents. Okay? It's just, it's just amazing. But they've got to make sure that they don't turn the cameras off too quickly. 
because verse 11, now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and the enemies saw them. Sound familiar? Come up hither, right? Says the same thing. All right. right. It's going to be so cool. You know, these witnesses are examples of what we can be in these last days in which we live. And, you know, you're to share the gospel. You share the good news with, with, with people, people that your neighbors, your loved ones, your family, your coworkers. Share the gospel. And you know what? Yeah, we're going to get beat up emotionally. We're going to get beat up verbally. We're going to get left out. But you know what will happen is that we're going to rise. We're going to rise. We're going to rise emotionally. We're going to find our faith growing. We're going to we're going to be um, uh, updating for sure. That's very nice. Okay, <laughs> let's cancel this. Let's cancel this. And are we good? I'm updated. I feel much better. <laughs> so you're going to find your faith growing. When, when you start sharing your faith, it's just, just going to get nothing but stronger and stronger. So even if you're put down, beat up, left out, you're going to find yourself feeling revived. And if you feel your relationship with the Lord is stagnant, if it's not growing, witness. That's what you should do is witness. Share your faith. And I guarantee that these two witnesses in, 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 chat, in verse 11, um, you'll be caught up into, into heavenly places. Amen? Amen. Tonight, my challenge is to you is to be a witness and to share your faith. And so this week, find some opportunities to be a witness and, and share your faith. Before we leave this evening, I'd like for us to take some time to, to circle the wagons. And so if you would please gather up into to groups of uh, five or eight, just small groups. And uh, we'd like to take a Take us a few minutes to pray corporately for a, a couple issues. Number one is we want to pray for God's vision for our church. We want to pray for the church board. We're going to pray for the church leadership. And we're going to pray for the churches in terms of individual needs. Alrighty? And so what we'll do is I'll just walk us through. We'll just spend a couple few minutes. So if you could just group up, group up in small little Circle the wagons.